my mother's mother, when they came to Auschwitz together in the middle of the night, they separated them. One went left, one went right. And that's the last time her mother saw her mother. This is Brian Geister, and I want to express my gratitude for you tuning in to Holocaust Survivor Next Generation podcast. My podcast series capturing some of the most enduring stories in history around adversity, perseverance, hard work, entrepreneurship, and generosity that truly have never been shared from the first generation, or maybe better said, the second generation of Holocaust survivors around the world. As a third generation family member whose grandparents were both Holocaust survivors from Poland and Austria, the values that were passed down to me from my father around work ethic, integrity, supporting the Jewish community, and overcoming all odds have shaped the way that I see the world and hopefully my opportunity to make a positive impact. Lenny, it's um, a privilege to um, have the opportunity to spend the time with you here in Los Angeles today to have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you for uh, making the time. You're welcome. Thank you. So just to kind of kick off, tell, tell me a little bit about just your, your family background um, prior to the Holocaust, prior to World War II, and your parents and grandparents, just a little bit about the background of the family. Okay. My father is Nathan Rosenblatt. He lived in large Poland for many generations. There are my father's father, the father's father, the father's father's father. They all lived in Lodge. And um, my mother, her maiden name was Tonya Cohen, K-O-H-N. And she came from a very religious family, uh, Cohen's. In fact, in her family, if I go back, uh, I'm named after my mother's father. And uh, also they lived in Lodge, Poland. And they come from a family of rabbis and very religious people. That's the background of my mother, my father, in a, I guess in a nutshell. I don't know too much because uh, a lot of the records were destroyed, but uh, I did go to large Poland and did see the cemeteries. Lenny, can you talk a little bit about their experience in the Holocaust or what they told you? They told me a lot of stories, and um, I can speak on my father. You know, my father was born March 3rd, 1922, and he wanted to be an architect. And um, he came from a somewhat affluent family, considering how the others lived. He was not religious. He, uh, I believe, like I said, he wanted to be an architect, but when the war broke out in 1939, that end of that. And he was in a ghetto for a few years and ultimately ended up going to several concentration camps. And um, I don't remember which one he was liberated from. Now I'm going on fast track right now, but he was liberated by the Americans. And uh, he told me many stories about how he survived the Holocaust. And I can tell you some stories, but, you know, stories like how he loved German shepherds because one time they blew a whistle and they took out a rouse in German. They took out about 50 guys and they took them outside the gates and uh, with shovels and they went out and each one started to dig and they were digging away and there were soldiers there and there was a German shepherd that was barking profusely, just barking and driving one of the German officers mad and he couldn't take it. And he said, listen, I can't take this goddamn dog. He's hungry. And he pointed to my father and said, you, you, you go with this guy and take the dog and go back to the barracks and get him food. Well, he did it, but the others never came back. Stories like that, that was one story. 
or in the middle of the night in the concentration camp. Again, I don't know which one because he went to several, including Auschwitz. And uh, they called him out in the middle of the night, you know, and they went, ein spy, ein spy, ein spy, ein spy. Let's say again, I don't know how many, 50, 100 uh, prisoners. And they told the ones to come forward and the two to go back. Well, the ones never came back. So there was a lot of intimidation and fear. And there were other stories that I can remember. But those are two of the significant stories of how he survived, how he got so lucky to live. With my mother, I remember her telling me that when they left, when they were in love, she also was born in a religious family. She ended up being in a ghetto. My father, her, I'm sorry, her father was in the ghetto and died of starvation. So when somebody tells me that they're starving, they're not starving. They may be hungry, but they're not starving. So my father, my, my mother's father, who I'm named after, died of starvation in the ghetto. My mother's mother, when they came to Auschwitz together, in the middle of the night, they separated them. One went left, one went right. And that's the last time my mother saw her mother. So I never had grandparents I mean, from my mother's side, and I never had grandparents from my father's side, because my, my father's mother died of a heart attack during the Holocaust, and my father's father died in Auschwitz. So I grew up with no grandparents. Um, these are stories in a nutshell. How did your parents meet each other? Well, when the war was over, and it wasn't just over overnight, it was over in sections. And my father was liberated again by the Americans. And then he was trying to look for his sister. And he heard that his sister was someplace. Didn't know where, but, you know, word got around that his sister's alive. And uh, so he figured how to get there. I remember he told me he stole a bicycle because uh, to get there to see his sister. And he did ultimately find his sister. And he told me a story that when he did come to see his sister, his sister fainted because somebody said that your brother was shot. So he met his sister and it happened that my father's sister was with my mother. And um, that's how I met my mother because he found his sister. Again, I'm speaking in a, in a nutshell. And where did they meet? They met in, uh, after the war, they met in, in Germany and, and they went to a displacement camp. And then the, they found them uh, rooms. They, they got rid of a lot of the German citizens and they put the survivors in these rooms. And my parents ultimately got married in Marburg, Germany, and um, stayed there probably for about a year. And then they ultimately came to the United States. So when, when they came to the U.S., did they come to, you know, we're sitting in Los Angeles, did they come to L.A.? How did they assimilate in the United States? And, you know, maybe speak a little bit, at least from what the stories you know around some of the challenges around language barriers and others when they came here? Um, you have to be sponsored by somebody. And my father had an uncle in New York. His name was Jack Raymond. It used to be Rosenblatt, but he changed the name to Raymond because he was a high-powered journalist for the New York Times, and uh, he was born in New York. So he was sponsored by Jack Raymond, and my mother wanted to go to Israel because uh, she had a brother and sister that lived there, and she wanted to live in Israel because she's somewhat religious, and uh, that was the place to go. But my father wanted to come to America, the land of opportunity. He lost everything. He and uh, ultimately my father won, and we, they came to New York in March. I believe it was March third, nineteen forty-eight, and then ultimately they came to Los Angeles because 
my father had a cousin or somebody in LA and they ultimately took a train and came to LA like two months later and I happened to be born June 24th. So I was made in Germany, had a rough, a, a rough six month voyage on the Atlantic with the, with the boat and um, I was born in LA. And so they, and uh, that's how they came to LA. And they did not speak the language. They did not have any money and they just wanted to start a new life and forget about what happened, not forget, but to move on what happened in, in, in Poland. So they came here, not a lot of education, obviously, Lang significant language challenges, right? In terms of language barriers, having, um, are you the oldest? I'm the oldest. I have one sister. So having their firstborn son ultimately here, what did they end up doing for work originally to be able to make a living? Well, my father couldn't speak English very well, but he wanted to be an architect in Poland. So he was very good in design. And he ultimately got a job in downtown Los Angeles in the Schmacke business. And what he would do is they'll take a, a roll of material and he would cut patterns and make dresses and shirts, but he was very good at getting the most out of the patterns. And the person that hired him didn't care if he spoke English. All they cared about that he would they would maximize the the materials. And he was so good at it because he knew how to get the most of it and and he learned English slowly, but uh, and saved whatever money he can get. That's what he did for work. And my mother was taking care of me. And um, then my, then I had a sister a year later, a year and three months later. We lived in Boyle Heights, which is a section of Los Angeles. It's now considered it's East LA, and we lived there for about five years. Can you share a little bit about kind of the values that were passed down from your folks that really helped shape who you are today? Yeah, my father was very, not demanding, but he, he, my mother, they, they never fought my mother. My mother always supported my father, and, but my father always listened to, his, to my mother. In fact, she was the only one that he really did listen to. My father didn't trust anybody, especially the government, didn't trust people. And he always felt that if anybody's going to help him, just be him. So he had confidence that only he can do it. And he lost, like, again, lost trust. And I grew up also not trusting anybody, thinking that people would take advantage of me. But I also grew up with a survivor mentality because they taught me what it is to survive. And no matter what I come through in life, whatever it is, it's nothing to compare with what my parents had to go through. So I look at that and say, huh, if I have an IRS problem or I have a like, nothing bothers me. I can handle it. If my parents can handle life and death on the whim of just some German decided, you know, hey, you're, I want to kill you, I can handle anything. So it, I, I was taught that don't trust anybody. You have to trust yourself. And there's nothing that you cannot do because when you compare my problems or if there's problems or situations, it is nothing. So I feel I can handle anything as long as I'm healthy. I don't want to fast forward too much. But I know you've been incredibly philanthropic. You and your wife have co-chaired and been honored multiple times at the Holocaust Museum dinner. Growing up, was Sadaka an important thing taught to you by your parents? I don't know if Sadaka was taught to me early on. In the beginning, my parents had to make money to survive. And it was very difficult to give money away to any charity. They just had to survive. So they made money, they saved money. The Sadaka and the charity came later. It, it probably came 20 years later. 
when they ultimately were successful in their business. And that's when it came. So in the beginning, there really wasn't much giving money. In fact, we needed the money because we, we, you know, my father made hardly anything. My mother didn't work. So I was raised on the beginning of bare necessity. You know, if I had a roof over my head and some food in my stomach, I didn't, I never really went out to restaurants, never went on sh- a shopping spree. If I had one shoe, I was happy, you know. So I grew up in Boyle Heights, um, not poor, but definitely wasn't middle class. So we needed help. But um, again, my father always felt that the help comes from yourself. So tell me a little bit more about that. You kind of, as it relates to your, it sounds like over time, your your father ended up starting a business in the United States after he got, you know, for a period of years. I, I don't know. My father was, again, my mother wasn't working. She was taking care of us. My father was working the Schmacke business, cutting patterns and this and that. And fast track, he was doing so well. And uh, he would ask for raise every so often. And he would get it because the employer wanted him to stay with them. And as the years went by, it could be three years, four years, five years, and he's working in the Schmacke business. He got some money. He didn't spend much money. He started to learn the language. He can speak English, get around. And he's all, we're always surrounded by Holocaust survivors, all of them. I mean, mainly from Poland. And then he ultimately felt, you know, I want to do something of my own. And he ended up deciding to leave, and he would start selling uh, women's clothing two people in a car. I would go with them sometimes, sit in the car so no one would take the the clothes. It could be stockings, mainly women's clothes, stockings, shirts, and he would sell them. And then eventually my parents opened up a store called CoverGirl, which was a clothing store. So eventually working a Schmacke business, then being independent, then opening a store, uh, this all took time. So let's say that this is 10 years now after they came here, so it'd be 1958. So they had a little store, but my father in the back of his mind always wanted to be an architect. And uh, he eventually decided he wanted to be a builder. And probably in about the early 60s, 61, 62, maybe 63, he got together a lot of other Holocaust survivors and they were in different businesses, whether it's a liquor store or whether it's a steel business or whatever. And they put together money and they bought a building or a, a piece of property. And my father was learning how to build the building because he wanted to be a builder and he's good with architect. And eventually, slowly, he started building and got his license as a builder, apartments for his friends who came from the Holocaust. And he didn't need a contract because they, they had a special bond. They came from the same rock. So basically, they, they shook their hand and that was their contract. Nothing was in writing. It was verbal. We're going to all go in, let's say four partners. We're all going to put our money. You're going to get a certain amount of money for building. And that was it. And, and they maybe wrote it down, but they didn't have lawyers. They didn't, they just moved and it worked. And then eventually he built quite a few buildings, probably about 20 over the next five years. And eventually he said, you know what? I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need any more partners. And I'm going to go on my own. And then he built his own buildings. And then he built his own, we, he built apartment buildings, primarily apartment buildings in Beverly Hills and West LA. And, and eventually, and I came in in the uh, early, like by 1970, and I worked with him, but 
was interesting. My father always said to me, and still haunts me because he was hard on me, really hard. And he would say, I don't care. And I was in school. I don't care what you do as long as you're a doctor or a lawyer. And I thought that, that's not right. But ultimately, I went to law school. And I went while I was working with my dad. I went to night school and uh, I became a lawyer. And I did practice for about 30 years. I did a lot of litigation and um, real estate litigation. And I also have my general contractor's license. So I really was dancing two weddings. I was doing country contracting work, building apartments, and practicing law. But that was in the early 70s until about maybe the year 2005, where I decided, especially my father passed away in 2002, I gave out the practice of law. And um, although I still have a license and it's active, I primarily went into the building business again, and I decided to continue, and I took what he taught me, what I learned to build more apartments, and then I ultimately brought in my sister's husband. We formed a company, and, and eventually we separated, but I'm still doing that today. February 4th, 2020, I'm still building apartments with my son in now, and my daughters work with me. So everything, and what I'm telling you in, in, in five minutes is over, like, 40 years. How did your parents being Holocaust survivors, do you think, shape you in terms of who you are today? Oh, well, like I said, uh, not to trust people, to depend on yourself only, to work hard, and there's nothing you cannot get if you put your mind to it. Um, and they also taught me not to forget where I came from, because um, I always think about, you know, where I came from. I didn't get, I didn't, wasn't born with instant wealth. It took me a long time to get there. So I always think, you know, be humble, know your roots, work hard. If there's, a, if there's a problem, I don't even call them problems, I call them situations. You can handle it. Again, I didn't go through it. My parents went through, and for all the stories I hear, there's nothing, as long as I'm healthy, absolutely nothing that I can't handle. It's not a problem. It's a situation. Now, how did you and Janet meet? Because it's kind of an interesting, I mean, I want to learn more about how you, you both met, but it's also interesting that... Um, I believe her parents were also Holocaust survivors as well. Janet, it's interesting because I met my wife when she was 19, and that was in 19, oh my God, 1973. And I met her at a party, and she was this gorgeous girl. And um, when I met her, I didn't know her background, but then I found out that she also came from parents from, who came from Poland, but they were younger. And her father, they were in Eastern Poland. The father was from a thing called a place called uh, Buzanov, a small village, and he hid during the war, and under in the ground, and he was saved by righteous Christians, and that's another story. So I did visit those Christian Polish Christians when we did when we went to Poland. I went to Poland several times. So he escaped the war by hiding in a small village, afraid of the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians too, because now that it's Ukraine, it's Eastern Poland. My, my, my wife's mother was little and she ran away to Uzbekistan and ultimately to Siberia. So they escaped. And in fact, my wife had all her grandparents on her mother's side and father's side. And that was different. I, I didn't really meet survivors, children like me, second generation who had grandparents because most of my friends, they had no grandparents. They were in concentration camps. So her parents were not. And she, and, my wife can speak fluent Yiddish, 
In fact, she has a Yiddish club once a month in my house, fluent. And the reason why she can speak Yiddish, because she was raised by her grandparents and they spoke Yiddish to her. They all, they all four came to America. So she was raised by grandparents. She speaks Yiddish and, uh, and we're still married today. It's, and now it's been, we're married 40, 43 years. And uh, we have seven grandkids, three daughters, two son-in-laws. And we're, that's how we met. And of everything that you've been able to accomplish growing up, um, your parents obviously having significant language barriers, which probably even you growing up made it harder for you, like a lot of immigrants in this country that come who have children here. Um, and really worked incredibly hard to, you know, go to law school, create a better opportunity for yourself while your, your father and mother obviously are working so hard to give you and your sister a better opportunity. What do you take the most pride in of everything you've been able to accomplish? Me? Yeah. Take the most pride in? Well, I became a lawyer because my father, they really, my parents couldn't help me in school. They couldn't help me even with third grade math. They didn't speak the language. They didn't really understand. Um, so I could do it on my own. And again, with my father pushing me, I don't care what you are, as long as you're a doctor or lawyer, but um, I think my biggest accomplishment, well, besides marrying my wife, would be to graduate law school. My father, my parents were very, very proud of me being a lawyer. Um, and also taking my father's business when he passed away, and he gave me a strong base and strong ethics. And I took that and I grew that. And I know a lot of people have, have money they, and parents die, they squander it. And I just grew it. And I grew it even further that I have my daughters working with me, the three daughters, my two son-in-laws. And in fact, my grandchildren called me Papa. And that was, that's what my daughters called my father, Papa. Yeah. I didn't even want that name, but because it was my father's name, but you know, grandkids pick the name, so they pick me. So my so I think my values is, is in my business to make preserve it, to grow it, to continue with it, so my next generation could even do better than me. I tell my son in law, so I want you to do better than me. And I mean it. Sounds like a lot of pressure being in the family. But I think it's, it's... Well, they want it. My, yeah. my two sons are driven. And I, and I tell them, because he was talking about money. And I said, well, come on. So I said, you know, Brad, I want you to make more money than me. A lot more. And I'm going to help you. And my other son-in-law, too, is different. But I, so I want them to grow. I, in fact, right now, I'm, I'm like somebody told me, you know, I'm in a position in my life where I want to deal with a warm hand and not a cold hand. And I'm doing it right now as we speak. That's amazing. So... When we think about the values and, and what you want to pass on to your children, how do you want to be remembered? To be, a, I guess, a good son, a good husband, a, a good father, a good grandfather, be remembered. I don't know. Um, to let my children benefit from what I've accomplished while I'm living. I really want to do this not when I'm gone or remembered. I want to do this while I can see it. And that's why I said that I'd rather get with a warm hand than a cold hand. That resonates in my brain a lot. That, and I want to do. I want to see it. I want to see that they have nice things. We go on vacations. They have a good life. I want their life to be better than my life. Although my life wasn't so bad, but I want them to be better. And uh, I guess that was 
The same with my parents too. They wanted their children to have a better life. And I want my children to have a better life. And my grandkids, they even have a better life. And, and always remember, especially my daughters, because um, my, my grandkids are too little, ages two to seven. I want my daughters to remember where they came from, who they are, to be humble, be respectful, and you're not better than anybody else. Just be who you are, but don't don't talk about it. Just live it, do it, but be humble. Yeah. Well, I hope I answered your question. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 amazing to be able to spend the time with you and and hear and, and the the commonalities even between how you were raised and how my father was raised, or even how I was raised. Um, it's, it's, but you asked me something to interrupt, but you asked me about, you know, giving back. Um, I'm involved right now with, in the last, I say 10 years, I've been involved in a lot of charities, whether it's the Jewish Federation, whether it's, uh, stand with us, which I'm very proud to be part of, which is a recent only been around 19 years, whether it's APAC, but I decided to pick a charity that I really felt it was meaningful to give back and remember my parents. So I got involved in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. Being in Los Angeles, you know, far away, and I wanted, we represent the West Coast, and I decided to get involved, and my wife. And we didn't get involved. And, we, and about five years ago, we became dinner chairs, and, um, and then... The following year, we became honorary chairs. And then after that, I also became a dinner chair. And I'm involved. I'm involved in the committee on the West Coast. And I want to give back to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum because that is significant. That means a lot to me to remember what happened. And so I'm giving back to my parents. If my parents would see what I'm doing right now, that we are honored by the Holocaust Museum, they would be impressed. So I give back in that way. And there are other charities, too. Not just Jewish charities, but supporting the Beverly Hills Police Department, the Fire Department. So I became more philanthropic as I became what I was in position to do so. And it makes me feel good that I give rather than receive. Well, I can only imagine how proud of you that your parents must be looking down at the, the beautiful family you showed me the picture when I'd come in. Um, that you've you've obviously grown here in, in Los Angeles, and obviously what you've been able to do professionally, not only being a lawyer, but then being able to build off of being a lawyer and leverage those skills um, in building a real estate company, and then having the family involved. So, it, thank you for obviously making the time. It's really been a pleasure to have you on the podcast oh, and um, to to have the opportunity to get to know you. And another thing I want to say, if you don't mind, because having three daughters, I was always concerned about. The name. How do I continue Rosenblatt? You know, I have a Conroy now. I have a LaBranche now. I have one daughter that's not married. She's still a Rosenblatt. I didn't know how to do that because I wanted the name Rosenblatt to continue. So I have a company. It's called Rosenblatt Properties. And Rosenblatt Properties will be the name that will continue. And I'm very proud of that. So even though the last name is not Rosenblatt, the business is Rosenblatt and will continue. And I was thinking, well, maybe I have a different name. But no, I said, you know, let Rosenblatt go on and continue on and on. So I'm, I'm very proud of that, too, to form the Rosenblatt Property Company. <laughs> thanks, Lonnie. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And it's, it's meaningful. And um, thank you again. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome.
This is Brian Geister. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I'll be back next time with another story featuring an incredible philanthropist who's overcome all kinds of adversity and the horrors of the Holocaust coming to North America and building an incredible company. Thank you so much and hope to see you again soon.